start out a little different here this morning. Away from my notes, this is unscripted, so this is dangerous. Uh, I like to have it scripted out so I'm theologically accurate and I keep my words where they need to be. I need the gospel this morning. I don't know what you, what you brought in here, um, but I bring in baggage. I'm struggling. There are, things, uh, there are things in my life that I'm ashamed of. Um, and, and try that on. Put yourself in my position. Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday, I have to get up in front of people and talk about God's goodness and God's faithfulness and how to live for Jesus Christ when I myself do not live perfectly for Jesus Christ. And so this, this work is very dangerous work uh, to feel like a total hypocrite in front of people, especially when I'm struggling at a deep level with the sin in my life. And I think that you can identify with that to some extent. I mean, don't you see in your lives that there are repetitive, unrelenting sins that keep coming back? They don't let you alone. Not even for a minute. It's like the moment you get through one episode, you might have have gotten scraped up a little bit, and you get on the other side of that, you repent to God, and moments later, you're right back into the same sin. And you're like, is there any end to this? (laughs) How do I get through this? Where? And I'm asking the question in my life recently, where is the Holy Spirit's power? Because I need that power because I know on my own will... On my own ability to just get it done, Jonathan, just live for Jesus, I'm recognizing I'm, co- I'm coming up short. This is really hard to be above reproach, to keep my mind clean, to follow Jesus in every last part of life. I need a Savior. And so I don't think... We're hypocrites when we come to say, here's how we're supposed to live to follow Jesus, but the reality is we can't and we don't, and with His help, we can do better with that. We're just pleading for the grace of God. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite was like, I got this down, baby. I'll ace this. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, I need a Savior this morning like I do every other day, at every waking hour. I need to trust something Powerful enough to save me from the incredible depths of my own sinfulness and depravity. What's powerful enough to trust in to do that? Where do I turn to, to, to get rid of this stuff inside of me? Trust is a precious thing. Uh, trust is vulnerable. Trust is complex and very personal. And I think that we're all a little skeptical to a certain extent to trust because people are predisposed to let us down. And maybe this carries over into our relationship with God. We may suspect He'll let us down. And maybe we feel like God has already let us down in some way. However, just because we go through hard things doesn't mean God has left us down God's grace is unrelenting. We feel like our sin is unrelenting. God's grace is more unrelenting. He keeps pursuing us. He'll never let us down if we trust Him. Two of the most famous verses in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. 
We must be confident in God. Our understanding is limited. God's understanding is limitless. God makes our paths, our journeys, the way that we go straight when we know and acknowledge Him in those journeys. John's book is all about Jesus earning your trust. John writes, so that you will believe in Jesus and have life in Him, so he presents a case for why you should place complete confidence in Jesus Christ alone. Four reasons Jesus can be trusted, and the fifth one is is a response. So let's uh, briefly pray here to ask the Holy Spirit's help. Father in heaven, I'm a broken man and we're broken people, and I pray that the Holy Spirit comes in massive amounts with power and glory and clarity and truth to lead us to treasure Jesus Christ most. In his name we pray, amen. Number one, Jesus is is a superlative intellectual philosopher and theologian. Superlative means to the highest degree. The Appalachian Mountains are extensive, stretching some 1,500 miles from Newfoundland to central Alabama. The Rockies are more extensive, stretching some 3,000 miles from British Columbia uh, down into New Mexico. But the most extensive mountain range in the world is the, do you know what it is? The Andes. The Andes, which unfold for a breathtaking 4,300 miles through seven countries from Venezuela to Argentina. The Andes are superlative. Einstein, Tesla, Da Vinci, Newton, all the greatest intellectuals of history fall short of the superlative intelligence of Jesus All the greatest philosophers, Epicurus, Confucius, Aristotle, Plato, fail to rival the philosophical excellence of Jesus Christ. Even the greatest theologians of history, Paul of Tarsus, Augustine, Calvin, Edwards, fumble in metaphysical confusion compared to the divine comprehension of Jesus Christ. Jesus is history's greatest mind. Verse 14 says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jesus had arrived discreetly in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze, and God led him up to the temple area to teach. And so it was common for distinguished rabbis of the time to go to the temple to teach. And we find in verse 15 that the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied So the Jews here are probably the people, including the leaders, and they're all marveling at the uh, intellectual aptitude of Jesus. They were literally asking, how does this man know grammata, or letters? They wondered how he could be so fluent in the Hebrew Scriptures, so confident and articulate, with no formal rabbinical training. He had no degree, he had no PhD, so to speak. Now, the scribes were the intelligentsia of the day. Scribes were revered. One source said that the scribes appeared as the zealous guardians of the law. Imagine being called a guardian of the law. They were experts in Jewish law and theology, scholars who paid meticulous attention to the letter, the letter of the law, and interpreted, taught, and applied the scriptures. They held a great authority and influence among the people. And here Jesus is perplexing them because he was a Galilean peasant, a common worker, 
with common parents and common brothers and sisters, and he didn't fit their educational mold. Yet he confounded the intellectuals with his knowledge. I love what Matthew 7, 28 and 29 report. It says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And here's the reason why. Verse uh, 29, For he was teaching them as one who had exousion, authority, and not as their scribes. Jesus astonished people because his authority in his teaching surpassed that of the scribes, the scholars of the day. Jesus commanded respect. He spoke with power. He was a genius. He was unique. Other intellectuals, they studied under men. They studied under rabbis and doctrine that was passed down through apprenticeships. The rabbi or teacher held authority and their authority derived from tradition and what was passed to them along with their own interpretation. So apparently when scribes taught, they would quote these long lists of references to back up the points that they had, kind of like a footnote or uh, in, a, in a paper or an essay or a book. And then Jesus came along and he said things like, truly, truly, I say to you, or I tell you the truth. Jesus spoke with confidence. He spoke with conviction. Why? He was connected with God. Here is the difference between Jesus and every other intellectual philosopher and theologian of history. Jesus takes his doctrinal content directly from God himself. Listen to how Jesus responded to their astonishment. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. This brings us to the second point. Number two, Jesus teaches with authority from God, motivated by the glory of God. The scribes held authority because of their education. Jesus holds authority because of his unity with God. Now imagine having a a discussion in a conversation circle among some science faculty from a prestigious university. You can pick your choice there. And one brilliant science professor in the conversation boasts about finishing an exclusive one-on-one doctoral program with theoretical physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking from Cambridge University. Now, naturally, the faculty is going to be impressed by that. Whoa, right? Stephen Hawking, oh my goodness. And then imagine that another professor chimes in and says, I completed a rigorous one-on-one doctoral program with God. I mean, who can one-up that guy? He just beat everybody. I mean, God trumps everyone. God is Jesus' rabbi, and all other educated scholars were trained by men. Now, any crackpot can make the claims of Jesus that he did. What distinguished Jesus were his mor- it was his moral faultlessness, his authority, and his public miracles, which supported and validated his teaching. D.A. Carson wrote this, quote, Earlier prophets could thunder, thus says the Lord, but Jesus' words and deeds are so much at one with the Father's, not only because of his unqualified obedience, 
but also because He does everything the Father does. That Jesus can legitimately and repeatedly presage His remarks with an authoritative, I tell you the truth. Again, the doctrine of Jesus is the doctrine of God. Jesus said in verse 18, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Now in those words is an indictment of the guys that he's talking to as well as a justification of himself. Earlier in John 5.44, he told some of the same people, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Pride is so often expressed through the voicing of one's opinion. But humility reigns where one appeals to an authority outside of himself. In John 5.27, Jesus said that God gave him authority to judge. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus prayed to God in John 17, 1 and 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Then in John 8, 49, yet I do not seek my own glory. In John 17, 4, Jesus prayed, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The authority of Jesus was given to him by his Father. And Jesus is so selfless and preoccupied with the glory of God that he's supremely trustworthy. That's why you can trust Jesus, because he's taken up with the glory of God. He is true, as verse 18 puts it. Because Jesus is not in it for himself. He's in it for the glory of God. Now, why would anyone take Jesus above Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Gandhi or Dr. Phil or Oprah or whatever other guru you want to fill in? Verse 17 explains, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What criterion did Jesus give for discerning him and his teaching ministry? Well, Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will. That's his answer. To know whether Jesus really speaks the word of God with authority, you must want what God wants. The Jews ultimately desired their own will, not God's. And this is how they could accuse God's son of demon possession. How do you do that? Their motivation was not the glory of God. Their motivation was the glory of themselves. So our knowledge and discernment of Jesus directly relates, uh, relates to our desire for obedience to God. Knowing stems from willing. We will accept the teaching of Jesus and apply it to our lives when God changes our heart, works His grace in us to want His will more than anything else. Paul told the Philippian Christians, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you find yourself wanting what God wants, that's God's grace at work in you to want that. Are you obsessed with doing God's will? Is that, are you just fanatical about anything to glorify God? Because only then will you know and understand the profound beauty 
and rationality of the teaching of Jesus. Crave God's will in your life, then you will know and discern. One preacher summarized it like this, quote, you will discern that Jesus is a reliable spokesman for God when your will is so transformed that you will what God wills, when your desires are God's desires, when your passion is God's passion, when your preferences are God's preferences, then your reason will be able to see Jesus for who he really is. When your willing is in sync with God's, your knowing will be in sync with truth. Jerusalem, test yourself. Do you desire to live out God's will more than anything else in your life? If you want to discern Jesus rightly, you must be obsessed with doing God's will. If you don't, then you will live a reckless life, an undiscerning life, a gullible and in indiscriminating life, following every trend or newfangled doctrine accepted by the irrational masses. Discernment is missing in the lives of many churchgoers in America. That means that many people in the church today are unable to discriminate or to distinguish truth from error. Could it be because we want to do our own will more than we want to do God's will? We need to be fanatical about holiness. We must be obsessive, compulsive about doing God's will. We can't let up. And let me ask you a really good question, I think. Are the people who most influence your thinking and your choices giving you their advice and ideas or maybe popular opinion or are they so saturated with biblical doctrine that they can't help but give you God's truth? Charles Spurgeon, a hero of mine, thought so much of John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress that he said this of Bunyan. He had read the Bible till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress without continually making us feel and say, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. The most powerful voices in your life should be full of the word of God. This is exactly why Jesus should be the most influential voice in your life. When he speaks, God speaks. The counselors that you are listening to are so very important. You know, one of the biggest reasons I love my wife is because she is gospel-centered, soaked with the gospel. So when I'm down, when I've fallen, when I need encouragement, she is there to point me to the cross of Jesus Christ. Who, who are you listening to? Who's feeding your mind? Another reason to trust Jesus is, number three, Jesus teaches without reproach, with absolute moral superiority. Now, if we need a coach, we look for people that are better than us, right? Or at least more knowledgeable. Our kids recently took swimming lessons at Landisville Pool. That was where uh, Christina grew up taking lessons. It's pretty sweet connection there with 
history in our lives. So imagine we show up on the first day to swimming lessons and one of the instructors jumps into the water to warm up before class and all of a sudden starts thrashing around in the water, gasping for air. Help! Help! Someone come and rescue! And all the other instructors have to jump in and pull this guy out. That does not build confidence. You don't want CPR administered to the swim instructor before they teach your kids how to swim. The wisest counselors are those who exhibit several characteristics that we all understand. They are wise and have made good, wise decisions themselves. Not perfect, but a consistently wise life. They love us deeply and they want the best for us. They routinely tell the truth. Even if it's hard for them, they tell the truth. And they're willing to say the hard thing if it needs to be said. Those are the best counselors. Those are the people that help us the most. Hypocrites make lousy counselors. But humble people aware of their own sin and limits who know the truth and can help apply the truth to life. Making, they make amazing counselors. My pastor, Bob Hopper, used to say years ago that he didn't trust anyone who didn't walk with a limp. And he meant a spiritual limp who's had some bumps and bruises along the way. I appreciate that. I'm limping. And uh, people who limp alongside of me have been really encouraging to me through life. But every counselor is fallible except one. And I want you to think for a moment about the moral superiority of Jesus Christ. Think about how he lived. Verse 18, Jesus said, The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. First of all, the fact that Jesus lives entirely for the glory of God makes him completely trustworthy and reliable and dependable. He is not compelled by his own motives and desires, but by God's motives and desires. That's what makes Jesus true. And Jesus goes farther. Not only is he true, but Jesus said of himself in verse 18, and in him there is no falsehood. John used the Greek word adikia, and this word generally means a disregard for what is right. It means unrighteousness, doing anything unjust or wrong. And Jesus said about himself that inside of himself he has no unrighteousness, no desire to do anything wrong, to swerve from God's will in any way. Aren't you excited about trusting someone with that kind of character and integrity? Since verse 18 mentions the word true, it's likely that Jesus more narrowly meant that he would tell no lie, that there was no falsehood inside of him. Hebrews 6.18 teaches God cannot lie. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 it says there was no deceit in his mouth. Imagine that. A counselor who would never tell you anything wrong. Who'll only tell you what's helpful and practical that you can use in your life to to glorify God more. Jesus can do nothing but tell you the truth. In these verses, Jesus made the case for his own reliability with Jews who trusted in the opinions of experts and scholars and theologians of the day more than in Jesus when Jesus held the superior position of having divine knowledge. He defended his character and doctrine and he exposed the deceit of his opponents. He said to them, verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? 
These men prided themselves of being righteous. They were fanatical about observing the law of Moses and Jesus said, none of you, none of you obeys the law. What an indictment. And he'll explain verse 19 a little bit more in in verses 21 through 24. But didn't the law say you shall not murder? Wasn't that pretty clear? That taking the life of someone else is against God's rule? Didn't Jesus say that murder originates in the heart? And they want to kill God's son. The sixth commandment has already been broken in their heart. And so Jesus pours it on and he adds more fuel to the fire. And he says, why do you seek to kill me? Now flash back for a moment to John 5.18. After Jesus healed the paralytic. It says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So now we know this traces back a while where these people were plotting for some time to kill Jesus. Jesus has them pegged. The crowd responds, verse 20, you, this is looking at the Son of God, you have a demon. Who is trying to kill you? Now the crowd is the people at the Feast of Booths, not simply the leaders, and the the crowd is uh, is likely to be unaware of what the Jewish leaders were actually plotting against Jesus at this point. And yet the leaders were part of the crowd that day, so I wonder if they're standing there, were they just keeping quiet when he said that, or were they actually like, you know, who's trying to kill you, and lying out of their own mouth? I don't, I don't know, but they're in a precarious position. Jesus could have answered their question by pointing to the Jewish leaders and saying, them, they're trying to kill me, those guys right there. He is, he is, he is. He knew. They looked upon the Son of God and accused him of demon possession and they plotted his death. Later on in John, they say he's insane. Sometimes people are demonized for knowing and standing for the truth. Amen? Have you ever been demonized just because of your perspective on something? When you have the right perspective, God's perspective? This is how martyrs are made. So at the, fe- at the feast, Jesus was the only one above reproach, the only one without any unrighteousness or pretense. He was morally superior in every respect, and his opposition was hypocritical. They were insincere. They were duplicitous. They were flat-out treacherous in what they're thinking. And yet they were considered the trustworthy scholars. They were the, considered the elitists. But they lied, they plotted murder, they broke the law of Moses, and, and, and they even accused the Son of God of being demon-possessed. Wow. Number four, Jesus always keeps proper perspective and priorities. You know, Jesus is awesome for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that he always keeps balance. He's always the perfect balance of truth and grace, the perfect balance of mercy and justice, of content and tone, the way he said things, and and his perspective is always spot on, and his priorities are always in flawless sequence. Watch how masterfully he uncovers the hypocrisy. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Jesus is flashing back to what happened in John 5. He healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. On the Sabbath, there was the problem for many. 
And John 5.16 says the Jews were actually persecuting Jesus because he did these things on the Sabbath. They were actually plotting his death in part because he did these things on the Sabbath. They thought in their minds that he was breaking the Sabbath. He healed a man's disability immediately by sovereign power in the man's life. But rather than marveling, rather than rejoicing at who Jesus is, that God was in their presence, they were appalled at his timing. Now, to understand Jesus' argument in these verses, you need a little background. First, understand that God commanded Israel to cease from work and to rest on the Sabbath day. And over the years, the Jews added all kinds of man-made stuff to God's laws and, and, and added restrictions that were just laborious for the people, and they made it legalistic, and they lost perspective of the purpose of the Sabbath. But God did command Sabbath rest. Secondly, God also commanded Israel to circumcise their boys on the eighth day. Circumcision was actually given to Abraham years before Moses, which verse 22 alludes to, though circumcision was reinforced in the Mosaic law. Circumcision was a visual sign of the covenant of grace between God and his people, a sign of being made clean, of being set apart for God, a sign of having a circumcised heart. Sometime watch the significance of circumcision in the Old Testament and you'll see that it has to do with the heart. God links those things. It was not just a national identity. They were God's people. Mark, circumcision represented God making people spiritually clean through Christ many years before Christ came. Now there's a problem. If it's the Sabbath and a baby boy is born on the Sabbath before and turns eight days old on the following Sabbath, do you work circumcision on the Sabbath? Which is it? Is it... Obey circumcision or obey the Sabbath. And they chose rightly to circumcise the baby boy, a work which displays God's faithfulness and grace in Israel, a work that signifies the cleansing or perfecting work of Christ. However, it did break, in a sense, the Sabbath in their mind, as it were. Circumcision was rightly allowed on the Sabbath. Other merciful acts were accepted as well, like untying livestock to lead them to get a drink or pulling uh, livestock out of a pit that had fallen in, acts of mercy, and Jesus recognized that. So are you beginning to see how they're caught in hypocrisy? They were seeking to murder Jesus because he compassionately healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to pick up his mat, and when they themselves broke, so to speak, the Sabbath to rightly circumcise the boy. The point is that they weren't breaking the Sabbath and neither was Jesus when he did the greater act of healing the entire man compared to circumcision of just doing a, a cleansing act of one part of the body. Jesus was arguing from the lesser of circumcision to the greater of healing the entire man. I read that Jewish thinkers of the time believed any necessary act of mercy could be lawfully performed on the Sabbath. Was that merciful for him to give the man his, his legs back and his energy and his vitality? So you can understand how healing the paralytic was actually more acceptable than circumcision because the entire man was healed. 
When Jesus healed the paralytic man, it it became sort of a fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision, which predated the Mosaic law and and revealed the healing power and grace and sanctification, cleansing work of God. Jesus is sovereign over the Sabbath. Sabbath was made um, for the man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is sovereign over the Sabbath. God's redeeming grace and cleansing work leads to eternal rest and these Jews protected and valued their Sabbath law above the cleansing and redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wasn't having it. That angered him. And what made them hypocrites was this. They subjected Jesus to laws that they themselves did not follow and they never were remorseful or repentant about that. It's one thing to, to, to make the mistake of subjecting people to our man-made laws, but then it should be quickly followed with repentance and faith in Christ. They had no remorse. They were attacking Jesus, God's Son. And Jesus asked them a telling question, Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I man, made a man's whole body well? Is that what you're going to come against me so hard over? Now, how could they possibly answer that? He had them. I love it. He's masterful in his teaching. He cornered them, and they're caught in their own contradictions. Jesus viewed the Sabbath and God's redeeming power with perfect perspective. He kept it all in balance. He rightly prioritized the work of healing people and God's redeeming grace above the Sabbath rest, which just pointed to a rest many years in the future that is only found in Jesus Christ. So even the Sabbath is temporary to get us to look to eternal rest in Christ. Jesus strongly honored the Sabbath, and they didn't honor it at all in their heart. Their hypocrisy and disordered priorities blinded them to the awesome power and truth of Jesus. Have your priorities gotten in the way? of you experiencing all that Jesus is and all that Jesus is doing. Are your priorities out of whack? Is hypocrisy in you clouding Jesus out? Clouding the gospel out? Clouding discernment for Jesus? I think sometimes our thinking and priorities in life prevent us from seeing fully the power and grace and truth of Christ and therefore our misaligned priorities often deprive us of deeper joy that we will experience in Christ. We get caught up in what we think, what we do, what we see, what we want, and we miss what God wants. We miss God's best. The hatred of these Jews for Jesus arose from their hypocrisy and infatuation with their own system and their own tradition. A multitude of sins surfaced for these guys because they couldn't see past themselves. So at the end of the day, folks, it's really simple. Last point, we must judge Jesus rightly. We must judge Jesus rightly. Now, I don't mean judging in the sense of critiquing Jesus or somehow possessing power or authority above Jesus. What I mean by judge is discerning or forming an opinion of Jesus based on the truth. Jesus said in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The judgment of the Jews was very confused and tangled. They were were judging Jesus based on appearances. They were judging Jesus based on what appeared right to them or what they thought. They were all out of whack. And so Jesus commanded them to judge and to discern with right judgment. And so he's essentially saying, guys, get it right. Guys, get me right. 
Look past what you can see to reality, the reality of me. Listen to me. Look to me. They just keep missing Jesus. I wonder, are any of you just just perpetually in front of the gospel, but you still are missing Jesus? These men heard it over and over in different ways from different angles, and they still missed Jesus. They said he was demon-possessed. They said he was insane. He was not a blasphemer. He was not demon-possessed. He was not a Sabbath-breaker. Jesus is God's Son come to redeem and save and heal in the fullest sense. They were completely wrong about Jesus, and we must be careful that we are not also wrong about Jesus. Folks, it's very, very easy to judge things by appearances. We do it all the time. We see things from a very limited perspective and we're oftentimes wrong in our perspective of things. Think about how the world sees Jesus, how wrong they are about him. Think how often Jesus is so badly misjudged. He is infinitely trustworthy. Yet how often do we trust other things in his place? Things that we can see, things that are tangible, wanting something more than a relationship with a man that we can't see right now. But what we will find is that we can't find anything else that is anywhere close to the reliability and trustworthiness of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more true than God's Son. If a 1,500-pound Kodiak brown bear is charging you at 30 miles an hour, they're fast, just barreling right towards you, do you want a gun that jams often? You're done. He's going to eat you. That's just what happens. Bears are awesome, but they're very dangerous. We need a reliable gun with stopping power because a BB gun's not going to do it either. So you need stopping power here. Boom! And it blows the bear back. That's what you need or else you're dead. When we face temptation and snarling sin, and it is a beast, you know it's power. You know it can munch your head off. You know what it can do to you to take your joy and to rob things from you and to bring pain and destruction in people's lives. Look around. Our world is broken. We're broken. Our church is broken. We struggle with this stuff. This is a Kodiak brown bear charging you quickly and you need to do something and you need to make a decision and what you trust in needs to have stopping power to stop sin in its tracks, something that can not only rival the brown bear, but overpower the brown bear and sink sin in its place. We need something beyond our own willpower to just look at the things that we struggle with because I am trying this, folks. It doesn't work many days to say, Jonathan, you can handle this. I'm going to go right at the brown bear and just try to punch him or something. And then I, my arm, I just get all mangled and teared up, tore up, excuse me. This is important to hear. This is a gospel message I need this morning. No matter what is beating you down right now, no matter what, folks, I don't care what it is, you can trust Jesus to get you through. You can trust Jesus to get you through. Trust is a precious thing. It requires you to be vulnerable, but unlike giving trust to anything else, Jesus will never let you down. He's there. He's with you. He'll get you through. He'll help you the next time to say, 
No, I don't need that. I don't need that. I got Jesus. Let's pray. God, there's no doubt about it. We need your grace. We need Jesus. So many miss Jesus. These religious leaders, these theologians, these rabbis, these scribes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these high priests, all the religious elitists of the day, they missed him. And yet in the middle of that, we know that some of the Pharisees were saved. I bet some scribes were saved because they trusted in Jesus Christ. And Jesus picked out these 12 just painfully common men and transformed their lives. They made all kinds of mistakes. Peter, man, he he rejected Jesus three times. And he even knew to look for it coming. Jesus warned him and he just betrayed him over and over and over again. And yet what happened? Jesus was with Peter. Peter remained faithful to the end. Peter trusted Christ because of the work of grace God did in his life. God, I pray that you pour out your grace on Jerusalem church. You pour out your grace on me. Redeem us, save us, sanctify us, give us holiness, give us courage to face the Kodiak brown bear of sin. Give us stopping power by the Holy Spirit in us. Give us the word in us to permeate us so much that we actually have a game plan the next time that we're attacked by sin. God, help us to be a holy congregation, one that loves Christ above everything else. Never leave us. You promised. You promised. You said you wouldn't leave us or forsake us, that you will be with us to the end of the age. You promised. And so we trust you because we know you can be trusted. In the name, the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our trustworthy Savior, we pray. Amen.